0: Now that true crime has become an obsessively popular genre, it is no surprise that when people find out we are forensic scientists, we are met with an outpouring of questions.
1: Did you work that recent homicide? Yo,
0: what does decomp smell like? You must love your job, huh? It's through questions like these that we have come
1: to realize that you want more. I'm Bodine. And I'm Darby, and we are here to serve up the Coffee Talk version of everything you need to know about the science, laws, and people behind the yellow tape. Welcome to the Washoe County Sheriff's Office. Coffee with the Criminalist. Hello everyone. Hello and welcome to another episode of Coffee
0: with the Criminalist. So today's episode is fueled by Coffee Bar. If you guys have not been to Coffee Bar, you're really missing out. They have a few locations, or even up in Truckee, and it's one of my favorite places. Actually, me and my wife really love to go here for um, dates. And I love to get the golden turmeric latte, and you guys will quickly learn that I cannot go to a coffee shop and not try their food menu, because I am quite the foodie. So I also got the grilled cheese and tomato soup the last time that I was there and oh it's on focaccia bread and it is delicious
1: I really love their lavender lattes I think it's their lavender tea lattes yeah oh they're so good
0: so good it's very aromatic too
1: yes I have like if it makes me feel like I'm at the spa yeah without actually being there Mm -hmm. and when we reached out to coffee shops and fuel each of our episodes we asked them if there was anything special or unique about them that they wanted us to share with our listeners And Coffee Bar responded saying that they would like us to share about their vertical sourcing blog series. This is where they do a deep dive into how they purchase coffee and their sustainability model with coffee purchases or producers. I'm sorry. At the end of the blog, they will launch their transparency report. And to read the blogs, you can visit their website at coffeebar.com and subscribe to their newsletter for the link directly to the blog. That's really cool i've actually never heard
0: of a series like that
1: me either that's what i was like when they were talking about it i know
0: yeah on today's episode we thought it would be really fun to give you guys a little bit of a rundown of the history of forensics um something that we found quite kind of mind-boggling for us was just how much advancement has happened in our field in a very short amount of time and we wanted to highlight some of the science that came before us and what has really led up to the advancement that you
1: know the science that we're doing today for me and Darby and just to add a little bit on that was that forensics has been around like the use of some of the things we see today has been around for a really really long time Mm -hmm. but there was like massive advancements more recently
0: yeah absolutely so we thought we'd be um give you guys just like a rundown of a kind of the last 200 ish years highlighting some of the big advancements um, during those decades and highlighting a couple of fun cases and talking to somebody who has been in forensics for over 25 years actually and she can talk about kind of what she saw. Uh, To kick this off, we don't want to reinvent the wheel here. So the New York State Police deserves a mad shout out because their website was really good, great resource for the uh, rundown of forensic history. So we pulled some things from there, and then we're also going to highlight some facts from our criminalistics book by Richard Safferstein that we were required to read in our training program.
1: <laughs> I was actually required to read this book for a forensics course I took in college as well, so it's really popular in the forensics community.
0: It is, and very useful in for our podcast. Um, the first recorded use of forensics was in 700, yes, you guys are hearing me right, 700, 700, um, by the Chinese who were using fingerprints at the time to establish the identity of documents. And then the next recorded usage of forensics was in 1248, once again by the Chinese, when a book was published um, on how to tell the difference from a victim being drowned or being strangled. And then to kind of kick off the last 200ish years we're going to fast forward to the 1800s and darby why
1: don't you start us off with explaining what the marsh uh, test is yeah so the marsh test is for arsenic and it it happened when john bodle was accused of lacing his father's coffee (laughs) coffee with a criminalist (laughs) with arsenic and chemist john marsh tested the drink in his lab for the presence of arsenic Um, but by the time he got it back to the jury trial the results had deteriorated and they weren't able to secure a conviction because they couldn't convince the jury that it was you know beyond a reasonable doubt Hmm. this really irritated marsh so he went back to his lab got to work and developed what we now know is called the marsh test and this won worldwide acclaim in 1836, and it uses zinc and sulfuric acid to test for the presence of arsenic in human tissue. Hmm. I think that a
0: lot of forensic scientists are still much like Marsh. We we like to be right, yeah, <laughs> and we like to make sure that things are done right, and done well. Um, the first recorded usage of ballistics to solve a criminal case was in 1835, when Henry Goddard solved a murder case. He was actually a member of London's first police force known as the Bow Street Runners. And the case was when a homeowner was shot and killed and they believed that the servant was the suspect and the wrongdoer in question. And the bullet was actually recovered from the body and they were able
1: to match it back to the maker's mold. And then in 1853, we see the development of the first crystal test for hemoglobin, which is what we find in blood. This is called the Takman test, and it involves heating blood with glacial acetic acid in the presence of salt crystals, or in the presence of salt and then crystals form that can be seen under a microscope. Hmm. And in 1857,
0: it was the first test that was a presumptive test for blood. You guys, I'm going to butcher this name. We don't use it anymore. It's called the guacom test um, and this utilized the peroxidase like activity of hemoglobin and it was a color change test that changed blue in the presence of blood we still utilize presumptive testing today it's how we test for bodily fluids in primary exam and we call them presumptive tests because these tests can cause a color change reaction with substances other than blood however it's a very good indication for blood um, and moving into the 1900s, this one's pretty exciting. This is the uh, invention of the phenylphalene test, which we still use today. Yes. Um, this test is more sensitive than the guacam test, but it is also a color change test. And if you guys have seen CSI Las Vegas in the beginning of the series when he adds like a drop of liquid and it
1: turns pink, that's the phenylphalene that's test. The phenylphalan- that's what he's testing with. I remember having to learn to spell this and say this Yes, <laughs> when I first started. It was one of the very first tests that I learned how to do here. Can
0: you believe that we've been using this test since 1901? I know. And it's we're still, still using like...
1: it as the tried and true. I know. We still use it, yeah. Yeah. Day in and day out. And then in 1931, we see the invention of the ABO blood typing technique. And this is when we start seeing uh, more of like an indivi- individualizing characteristic. So um, it can narrow down your suspect pool. Mm-hmm. It can't. know specifically identify identify them but it can narrow down who you're looking for Mm -hmm. do you know what type of blood type you have i do not oh darby (laughs) you should probably know that i was like i need to get tested and see what kind (laughs) of blood type i have i have no idea Um, in 1938,
0: it was the year of the invention of the drunkometer or drunkometer. I'm not quite sure what's pronunciation I like better. I kind of think drunkometer is quite funny. <laughs> Sounds funner. Yeah. Uh, this was a device that collected breath into a balloon. And it was uh, pumped that breath through a potassium permanganate manganate solution. And if the solution changed color, then alcohol was present. And the greater the color changed, the more alcohol was um, suspected in the subject. Can you imagine saying a
1: meter on the stand today? Right, or that you blew up a balloon with some hot air yeah. <laughs> to test it. <laughs> um, and then in 1954, this is the first breathalyzer for field sobriety testing. Um, so these are the tests that you, they do out in the fields, mm-hmm. not necessarily in the laboratories.
0: And also in the 1900s was the creation of gas chromatography, um, and this is still used today, a little different, uh, but this was a really
1: big invention for the field of toxicology. And then it's in 1985, which is where you know DNA fingerprinting starts to come on the scene, which is what you know we we are specializing in. And, so that was very recent field Mm -hmm. very recent
0: um and we thought it'd be kind of fun to highlight some interesting cases across the united states that played a massive impact on forensics and actually still impact us today the first of those was in 1923, it's uh, Fry, and this was Fry versus the United States. And it was a ruling that said that um, evidence admissible in court for forensic techniques had to be generally accepted within the scientific community. So the techniques that are being used have to be widely accepted within the field
1: of forensic science. And then in 1975, we see the emergence of the federal rules of evidence. And the one that we use specifically applies to us is Rule 702, which is important for the admissibility of expert testimony, which is what we are when we go testify in court. hmm
0: And then in 1933 was Daubert, and um, in this ruling, it was that general acceptance of the scientific community wasn't actually enough to allow our uh, forensic evidence in a courtroom. And it stated that the judge will act as the ultimate gatekeeper for what is acceptable. And uh, it's kind of
1: interesting because some states are Fry and some are Daubert, right, Darby? Yes, yeah, it depends on the state. So some have Daubert rulings and some have Fry rulings. It Hmm. just depends on the state.
0: Okay. Um, In the early early 1900s, there was actually no school or degree programs for forensics. Uh, Specialists were self-taught and it really wasn't until the 1930s that um, universities started establishing their own um, academic fields or departments in criminology. And so in the United States, the first university to do that was the Berkeley and they were the first one in 1950 to have an academic department completely dedicated to criminology.
1: And I thought this was kind of interesting because, you know, you see forensic scientists, we are still, I guess, specialists in our own fields. We're Mm -hmm. not, you know, specialists in all these different types of science. Um, We aren't like a one-stop shop, one person does everything. We're, you know, our own specialists. So that still kind of has that remnants of the old days where, Mm -hmm. you know, each individual scientist brought their specialty.
0: We know that we hit you guys with a lot of information just now, Um, so we kind of want to put all of this into perspective for you. So I'm 32. How old are you, Darby? I just turned 29. Darby's so young. (laughs) (laughs) You're not not that much older than I am. (laughs) Um, So for me, being 32 and Darby being 29, our lives have always had the field established of forensic science, right? Like It's always been something that we've known and we've grown up with. I remember... You know, growing up and watching the White Bronco, watching the O.J. Simpson trial, um, CSI, right, was also something that was huge, the TV show.
1: Yes, I grew up watching that.
0: Yeah, and so for us, we have literally always known forensics to be an established field. Um, but just a couple generations older than us, that's really not the case, right? So there are people that have watched forensics become established um, that are still alive today, which is
1: crazy. Yeah, I know. I've, I mean, I've only been in forensics for five years now. And from the moment that I came in and the technology that we're using, there are things that we have stopped using because we've moved on to the newer, better thing you know what Mm -hmm. I mean and so it really is kind of just in those five short years I've seen so much change so I can't imagine what someone who's been in this field for so much longer has actually seen in the strides that you know we've come Mm -hmm. well it's
0: funny you should say that because you know I've been in forensics for almost 10 years now this is my ninth year and when I first got started, I was pretty young. I was 23 years old, and I remember I would outwardly in the in the office like lament over, "Oh my God, we have to wait 45 minutes to get our four samples <laughs> off the CE instrument." And um, my coworker Monica was always there to kind of bring me back down to reality of how good I really had it, because she, you know, remembers like gel slab, like electrophoresis and that kind of stuff. And so um, we have Monica here today. She's going to talk to us about um, her 25 years in the field and how much advancement she has watched over this time and what kind of growth that she's experienced um during uh her 25 years in the field
1: hi monica thanks for joining us on our podcast today we're super excited to have you hi ladies i'm super nervous to be here (laughs) don't be nervous we don't bite i promise thank you for coming and talking to us
0: (laughs) uh to get us kicked off a little bit can you explain or tell us where you're from
2: sure i am from a small town in ontario in canada
1: And when did you come to the United States?
2: I originally first came to the U.S. in 2001.
1: And how long and in what specialty are you in, or have been in, in forensics?
2: Well, I have been listening to you ladies say that you're 32 and 29, so (laughs) I'm going to tell you that I've been in forensics for over 25 years. And no matter how long I stay in forensics, I will only ever say that I'm doing it for over 25 years. (laughs) But I've worked in the biology unit for the majority of my time, which is made up of the serology units, which is now referred to as primary examination, and the DNA section. Um, I also worked in the chemistry units for a while, and I did drugs, which for my parents was quite funny, because my my brother was actually a pharmaceutical rep. So when my parents were asked what their kids did, they would say, well, one of them does drugs and the other one um, sells drugs.
0: That's uh, awesome. <laughs> but uh, yeah,
2: mostly for the biology unit. That's where I've been.
0: And uh, how did you get into forensics, and did you know that you always wanted to be in this field?
2: So I sort of stumbled on it, actually. I went to the University of Waterloo to actually become a marine biologist. Um, I did a co-op program, which is something where you, work, you go to school for four months, and you work for four months. And one of my work terms was actually with the Royal Canadian Mounted Police, which is the Federal Police Force in Canada that does forensics uh, across the country. And that work term involved doing a research project, and I thought it was fantastic. I spent a lot of time reading books and learning what other people did, and I thought, oh, this is something that I can do. Even though it's inside, it's something that I can do. So unfortunately in Canada, there is only essentially, at that time, one lab per province, so a limited number of possibilities. So I ended up going to do... uh, research in molecular biology, which is similar to doing DNA analysis. And luckily, after about three years or so, I got into um, the forensic lab in Edmonton, and I've been doing it ever since, and I still love it.
0: And you even did this overseas, correct?
2: I did molecular biology work, not actually forensic work, but molecular biology work, yes.
1: Cool. What are some of the biggest changes you've seen in your career? I
2: think... uh, Several of the biggest changes is the discriminatory power of what biology can do. When I first started out, we were working with ABO blood systems and some differences in enzymes. And generally, a statistic you might be able to present in court would be one in 200 individuals would be approximately how often you'd see those results. It was an excellent thing for excluding individuals, but to actually include, there's still lots of people that had those results. Now we can pretty much say that individual is the source of a particular sample if we have good results. Uh, Another thing is the amount of sample that we needed to do our work. When we first started, um, something the size of a quarter would be what you would need in order to be able to obtain useful results for the DNA part of it. Um, Now, we can sometimes get results from a pinhead, so that's something that's excellent. Uh, The other thing that I've seen is the amount of time it takes to do the work. When we first started out, the type of technique that we utilized when we did DNA work would take anywhere from six to eight weeks and that was if everything worked correctly. Mm-hmm. Now if everything works correctly and we have a good amount of DNA, we can get results within a single day.
0: Yeah, that's, that's like a huge change, I would say. Yeah. Um, what type of testing were you doing when you first started in the career and how does that compare to what you're doing right now?
2: So when I first started, we worked with essentially ABO blood grouping, which I'm sure everyone is familiar with, and as well we looked at enzymes that are present in your blood. So these enzymes sometimes differ from person to person, but there's usually only two or three differences that people may have. So we would look at three or four of those enzyme systems and come up with that maybe one in two hundred. What we used to do was actually use threads and soak up the blood from a particular sample that we were looking at, place those threads on some uh, gel material, apply an electric current to it and separate those differences, and then we would stain the gels in order to to visualize that. So that was all relatively simple and straightforward. Um, Now we use... PCR analysis, Mm -hmm. and we target specific areas on the DNA molecule, and we come up with results using fluorescent tags and a lot more complicated equipment and produce results that are quite individualizing.
1: Do you find yourself before, I know we have a lot of like robotics and pieces of equipment and instrumentation that we utilize now, was that the case previously too?
2: No, the instrumentation was relatively basic when we started. So as I mentioned, we used to use pieces of thread to pull up the Mm -hmm. actual blood stain. And we did use electrophoresis, but very small uh, gel slab type electrophoresis. And then staining using Fast Blue B or something like that, things that we use in primary examination now.
1: What challenges do you face now that you didn't when you first started?
2: I don't see or hear as well as I used to. (laughs) Bit of a problem. (laughs) Sometimes that's actually a blessing in disguise. But uh, no, some of the biggest things are is the analysis that we perform right now is much more sensitive than the analysis that we used to perform. So contamination is something that we really need to be concerned about when we do our work. Um, It's also the use of DNA analysis or biology in investigating um, uh, crimes has become much more popular. It's very useful as an investigative aid. So previously a lot of the analysis we did was actually to confirm or exclude an individual as being the source once an investigation was almost completed. Now the work that we do is actually helping investigations to, to, to find out who might have done it when they don't have any idea. So the, uh, the need for doing the work is much greater, a large larger uh, span of types of analysis. It used to be just violent sexual assaults or homicides, and now we do burglaries and um, much lower crimes, so the demand is much higher.
1: And I know when I first started, I found it surprising, I guess this was a misconception I had from watching shows like, you know, CSI and Bones and all that, was the amount of women in our field. And I just was always curious, has that been that way, or have you noticed a more and more women coming into this field in recent years?
2: So I would say that there has been a change. When I first started, uh, there was probably more men than there were women. Um, at, the, at the most, it might have been 50-50, but it was actually probably more men than women. And I find now that it's uh, a rare male that we encounter <laughs> in, in our, <laughs> in more ways than one, a rare male <laughs> that we encounter in our field. So yeah, I think that uh, there's a lot more women in the field now than there were before.
1: I know, because when I first started here, I was surprised to learn that most of us, especially in the DNA section, are women. And then when I went to my very first conference, I was really shocked because I thought maybe we were an anomaly here, but that doesn't seem to be the case. Mm
0: -hmm. Uh, Do you have any particular cases that have kind of stuck with you or stood out in your career as being either difficult or have just stayed with you for any particular reason?
2: Um, I do actually have a case that... uh, I think about periodically. It helped me with a couple of things. Um, this was a case where an individual had been chopped up into uh, smaller pieces and uh, cooked in a pizza oven. So when I have pizza, I have a new respect for what I'm eating, but it also, I was presented with essentially cooked meat or a mm-hmm. roast beef, and I was able to obtain results from it. So it gave me a, an interesting insight into what was potentially possible.
1: Um, Have you noticed a difference in the way that you're questioned in court versus now?
2: Yeah, each time a new technology is introduced into the court system, um, there's a vetting process. So the amount of testimony, the amount of uh, background information that's required is greater. So when I first started going from serology and DNA was introduced in court, there was times, or court cases, where we might be on the stand for two or three days at a time giving background information and helping to show that the technology was scientifically sound and was accepted in the field. Once it gets accepted, the court testimony tends to be a little bit less in the background theory and a little bit more in just the case specifics. So each time a new technology or technique is introduced, we sort of backtrack a little bit where we have to spend a little bit more time. But I think overall, The testimony now is a little bit more straightforward and is uh, definitely geared towards helping uh, the jury try to understand what we do in simple terms.
1: So do you think it's gotten more difficult to testify as like technology and stuff has gotten more complex or do you feel like that groundwork has already been laid so now it's almost a little bit easier to testify in court now? I
2: think it's a little bit easier until a new technology or a new system. So for example, we've gone from gel electrophoresis to using capillary electrophoresis so the explanation of that initially was a little bit time consuming but now it's just accepted as that's the generally accepted way to do it Um, the statistical evaluation is something that we are going to have to deal with when we go to court in this jurisdiction coming up now we'll be going from doing um, the estimated frequency of occurrence of a profile in a population to giving a likelihood ratio using computer programming and that's going to be difficult.
0: Mm -hmm. Um, What advice would you give to people who are just starting out in this field?
2: I would suggest that they attempt to get some some type of exposure to real life forensics. So get an internship, go visit a crime lab. I get some information from individuals who do the work rather than relying on what the TV has to offer. Um, I do feel that it's a very rewarding career. Um, you, Some of the things that you see are not the best part of society, but you are helping to give answers to victims or to individuals who are falsely accused. So I've been doing it for more than 25 years, <laughs> and I still really enjoy what I do. So I would give the advice that it is a great career if it's something that you think you're interested in.
1: And who are you outside of work?
2: I have no superpowers, <laughs> <laughs> But I am uh, someone who loves being outdoors, so I've often said that I run on solar batteries, so I need to, I need to be outside doing stuff on a regular basis. I'm quite active as far as uh, cycling, both road and mountain biking. I hike, I like to kayak, snowshoe, um, pretty much anything outside. I've been no known to ride my bike 100 or 200 miles in a day for a special event and have been called a that case by <laughs> lots, <laughs> lots of people. But I have lots of friends that do the same thing, so apparently we're not all... Uh, out to lunch. And uh, usually that uh, generally ends with a glass of wine and lots of laughs with friends. But yeah.
1: I know I've heard you mention with road biking that you bike a mile for every year old you are on your birthday every year.
2: I do. And my birthday is not in the summertime. And I don't live in a place that is warm (laughs) all year round. So sometimes it's a challenge. But yeah, that's right. And it only gets harder, unfortunately. (laughs) Maybe I'll stick with that. So if I can't go over 25 years, for forensic work, maybe I won't go over 40 years for my Your age. Bike <laughs> <laughs> Do at least
0: 40 miles. There you go. Well, Monica, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. And you have made it to what we call the lightning round. Um, this is just a few series of questions that are kind of kind of fly at you here. And I will kick this one off. So the first question is, uh, you know, you've been in the field for a while and most people in their lifetime will have I think the stat is like three different three, careers. three different careers, yet you've had one. So what has kept you in the field of forensics?
2: I've moved around quite a bit. So I have worked for a number of different police agencies over the time. I enjoy a challenge of change, new places and that. So I'm essentially doing the same thing, but different places do things differently. So um, I think that's what's kept me in, uh, in, interested in, in, the techni- in the career.
1: Mm-hmm. Do you take your work home with you, like literally or figuratively?
2: (laughs) Uh, Sometimes, yes, Um, absolutely. There's some things that you see or hear or do uh, that you can't leave behind. But I think in general, you learn to compartmentalize as much as possible. But sometimes it's not always um, absolutely possible.
0: Mm -hmm. And um, what has this job changed for you outside of work?
2: Mm. I don't know. That's a tough one. I don't know that the job itself has changed anything. I am Canadian and uh, very trustworthy. And I would, I think maybe what it's done is I have refused to believe that what I see on a daily basis is the way most people are. Mm -hmm. So I refuse to believe that the majority of the people are going to steal something if I leave it out or that... um, something's going to happen if I forget to lock my door. Now, that's probably not the smartest thing to do, but I think that's by seeing the bad part, I refuse to believe that the majority of people are like that. So I don't know if that's really changed me, but it's made me perhaps affirm my Canadian niceness.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I love it. Same. And for our last and final question, what makes you smile every day at work?
2: My coworkers, I enjoy the people I work with, but actually quite often, I've been doing this for a long time and I still really do enjoy coming to work every day, Um, waiting for the results to come off the instrument after doing all of the work and seeing if potentially I have something that, a usable profile from a really lousy piece of evidence or potentially an exclusion for somebody who might've been uh, accused of a particular situation or getting a cold hit from uh, an entry into our DNA database. Those are all things that, uh, even after this many years, are still very exciting.
0: All right. Well, thank you so much, Monica. We really appreciate you coming on the podcast.
2: You are most welcome. Washoe, S one? S one. Go ahead. I'm Sheriff Darren Balam. Thank you for listening to another episode of Washoe County Sheriff's Office Copy with a Criminalist. This podcast is one more way our office is striving to build trust and partnerships within the community that we serve. To learn more about our office, please visit us on the web at washowsheriff.com. If you'd like to further support this project, click subscribe and be sure to tune in for our next episode to learn even more about forensics. Until next time, folks. Washoe, this is S1. I'll be 1042. Have a good night.
1: S1. Got me. Have a good night.